Okay, so for some higher education, I went to this cutthroat school. And I had this professor, right, who was known far and wide as being a very scary man. Every day, he'd call on a different person from class and kept that person in the hot seat for the rest of the hour. Question after question after Socratic method question. What's this? What's the case law? And how does it apply? You couldn't duck. You couldn't hide. And you could never, ever pass. The students were hyper-competitive, waiting, hoping for each other to make a slip-up. Trained to love the smell of blood in the water. I was there when he called on Laura, the woman sitting right next to me. And I knew instantly... It was going to be bad. Laura froze. Do you even know the case being referred to, Miss Laura? Are you here to waste my time? Are you? By the end of it, he'd reduced a grown woman to tears. (laughs) Scary, right? Now, there is this older dude what they called a non-traditional age student. And I knew everybody, but I didn't really know him. He always left right after class, in a hurry, no joking, no fooling around. I didn't even know his name until the next day when the professor looked down at the seating chart and said it like a cat ready for his mouse. Mr. Wilkins. Pass. Everybody starts whispering and mumbling. Did, did he say pass? Pass? Did he say pass? There is no pass in this class, Mr. Wilkins. Now then, if one were to shake hands with their neighbor and agree to the sale of a horsehair jacket, has a contract been formed? Pass. How dare you? Professor... I'll let you know when it's my turn. The professor and the student locked gazes. A moment. A moment. And then the professor blinked, looked back down at his seating chart, and called on me. Mr. Washington, does your handshake with your next-door neighbor constitute a contract? Um... Yes. Careful, Mr. Washington. Uh, No. The class roared in laughter, and my hour-long humiliation began. And after class, everyone gathered around Wilkins as he was walking out of the door. Hey, man, wow, how'd you face down a professor like that? I've never seen anything like that before. And Wilkins stopped, kind of looking bewildered, And then he looked at us like we were all slow. (sighs) I was up all night on my double shift as an emergency room physician. What? Wilkins was a doctor? My wife, she had an aneurysm last year. I have a very young son. He needs a lot of care. My time is very precious to me. He kind of smiles, looks at us, and he says... One day, y'all gonna realize these little mind games, they don't matter. And he walked away. And the next time I saw him, he sat down next to me in the professor's class and I felt a lot of things. Respect, admiration, yeah. But for that tiny behind the veil of his world I felt gratitude see some things matter some things don't it was about time I started trying to figure out the difference today on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR we proudly present gratitude stories from the past year that moved us in so many different ways it is the season My name is Glenn Washington, and this 
is Snap Judgment. Now, let it be said that one of the people I am most grateful for is Anna Sussman. Because if you were to hear just some of the things Anna Heart of Gold Sussman has squeezed into her life, you would assume that she's 98 years old, looking back with fond memories from a rocking chair. But she's not. On this story, we get to live a little bit of Anna's life with her. In an open-air classroom in western Kenya, I turn my back on 20 high school students to write an assignment on the chalkboard. Write a poem about HIV-AIDS. I'm 20 years old, dressed like a missionary in a floor-length skirt and a collared t-shirt, but technically, I'm a high school teacher. Although I've just barely finished high school myself, I'm living the young aid worker dream. Six weeks in a tiny chicken village in Africa, then back to college to show the photos to all my friends. I write letters home about the quiet beauty of kerosene lanterns, how much these people have to teach us. Kids line up outside my thatched hut to listen to my disc man. The school I'm teaching at is very new. 17 boys, three girls. At lunchtime, I actually hide behind a row of bushes to eat my power bars. I packed a suitcase full, but it's hard for me to hide, and I'm soon caught. What kind of food is that? It looks very fine. They're hungry. So I come up with a master plan. I get one of the parents to plow the field near the school in exchange for school fees, another to plant it with corn and beans, and a few months after I leave, they should all have daily hot lunch. Gorgeous. It's a plan I borrowed from the school down the road, but as far as I'm concerned, I just solved the problem of African hunger. The school had one set of greasy, worn government textbooks, the books used by every school in the country. On my first day, I decided they were substandard. I could create a more meaningful curriculum. The students come in with their HIV poems. Age is a ruthless killer. Age is like a dark forest. The poems are decent, but the students are embarrassed. They're supposed to perform the poems for the younger children, but they're too shy, too quiet, especially the three girls. So I come up with another plan, a puppet show. Let's all make puppets, and the puppets will perform your poems. Kid-friendly, less shameful. I'm on a roll. We'll make paper mache heads and cloth dresses for our AIDS puppets. I bring in cloth from the market, some balloons, a stack of newspapers, a bucket of water, and a 50-pound bag of flour. Mix the water and the flour together like this, and dip the newspaper in. I turn around to write some instructions on the board. Chaos erupts in the classroom. Wooden desks are knocked to the ground, a bucket of water is toppled, one boy jumps over a bench and begins to wrestle his classmate. I give a sharp, hey, and they freeze. Scraps of newspaper float to the dirt floor, and flour is everywhere. On their eyelashes, in their hair, bulging from their pockets. A wave of realization washes over me, cold and nauseating. They're hungry. They're fighting over the flour. I ditched the puppet plan. I divided the flour among the kids. I promised a bag of flour to the highest performing student, but of course, I just ended up buying bags of flour for all of them. In a desperate attempt to make myself feel better, I began giving away my remaining power bars, my clothes, my disc man. No, no, my student said. No thank you, teacher. But it wasn't about what they wanted. It made me feel better. When it came time to go home, I left most of my stuff. I just took my film, my notebooks, my passport. I walked to the road, caught a bus to the Capitol, and I bought a big crate full of brand new government textbooks to send back to the school's actual teachers.
She lives life, so you don't have to, ladies and gentlemen. Much gratitude to Anna Sussman for packing some snap along in her luggage. Now, since the dawn of humanity, we have recognized our penchant for war and dreamed of the day that we could turn swords into plowshares. Our success has not been so good. But Jacob would. Jacob thought that maybe he could turn some things around. My freshman year of college at the University of Wisconsin, 9-11 happened. And as it did for many men and women around the country, it galvanized us into a desire to serve. I said to myself, you know, it's time for you to kind of put your money where your mouth is and, and to join and go fight alongside everybody else. I enlisted as a, as a rifleman in the, uh, the Marine Infantry, and we were deployed with the surge to Iraq in 2007. So we went to the Anbar province. It was still a, a very nasty place to be. It was, a, it was a pretty rough deployment. A lot of people who come back from that situation, they, they always miss it just a little bit because it does create this sense of making everything around you that much more important. Everything becomes much more real. Life becomes much sweeter. Beer tastes all the better. Came back home in November 2008. At the end of my four years, I had all my fingers and all my toes. A lot of my friends hadn't been so lucky. I had a mother that... I owed it to, to get out because it was taking more years off her life than it was mine. So I came home. I started to apply to uh, graduate schools. And then in uh, January of last year, the earthquake hit Haiti. That sight there of those buildings crumbling. The images that are coming across the screen are just chaos. A city that's full of dust and debris and people running and covered in dust. UN soldiers with those familiar Reports are coming out that there's mobs that are looting, waving machetes in the streets and burning tires, and kind of had this urge to go help. It just made sense. I looked at the scenes coming out of Port-au-Prince, and I said, it's really no different from Fallujah. I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, I think I should go down there. I come up with a lot of stupid ideas, and she normally swats them down, and I fully expected her to swat this one down because... You know, it was going to be crazy and it was going to be dangerous. But uh, without hesitation, she said, I think that's a good idea. It was pretty incredible. I started calling people that I knew. I made a deal with her that if I could get one or two guys that I trusted to go with me, that I would go. Because I wasn't crazy enough to go down by myself. I went on Facebook and said, I'm going to go to Haiti. You could use the help. And within minutes, uh, William McNulty, who's with me right now, called me up. And I said, Jake, I'm in. He said he's in. Uh, I read that Facebook post, and so I said, uh, hey, man, I can do it. Shortly thereafter, a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, I'll buy everybody's plane tickets. And that's when it, this, I guess, dream or this crazy idea really became a reality. About two days later, we left for the Dominican Republic. I jumped on a plane, uh, met Jake down in Santo Domingo and the whole effort snowballed. About 16 hours after that, we were inside Port-au-Prince. Well, coming in from the border, you could start to see slowly the devastation. The closer and closer you got, the more destroyed everything around you was until finally you got into the heart of Port-au-Prince and it was just, it was, it was a big rubble pile, the whole thing. We basically struck a deal with the Jesuits prior to coming down that we could use their compound as a base of operations and then use our skills that we learned in the military, including uh, combat life-saving skills, and help plug ourselves in somewhere into this disaster response. And instead, for at least the first two days, it was just us and the Haitians, and we were in some of the worst uh, hit areas of Port-au-Prince. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was incredible. Camps that had literally hundreds of traumatic injuries and they had not yet seen a doctor. We're talking broken backs, broken legs, amputated limbs, limbs that had literally been shorn off with falling debris and they had nothing but a gym sock wrapped around the end of, around the end of it. That was really our welcome to Port-au-Prince moment when we walked into that first camp. Going into these refugee camps, what was remarkable to me was the way that we were received by these, these people, these victims. You know, they were so happy to see you. And they were so calm considering the situation. As we were setting up to begin triaging them, they were triaging themselves. And that was just kind of mind-blowing. 
Realistically, we probably treated about 500 people that day. At least a few dozen amputated limbs. We had two broken backs, a broken hip. Uh, we delivered a baby. We stabilized the patient, and we did that by uh, making splints. And we made splints from everything from... Um, Garage doors and, <laughs> yeah, and windowsills I mean, and sticks. I mean, anything we had, um, we, we would tear it apart and, and, and make a splint out of it. We were trying to wash out our clothes with, uh, with some water at night, shower up with what we could out of buckets and you know, wash the, the filth and the, you know, the blood off. And we'd go to bed, we'd maybe drink some beers if we could find them and then uh, wake up the next morning and, and get at it again. The experiences you have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you've responded to suicide bombers, you've responded to mass casualty situations. I think that from our perspective, there's nobody that's better suited for that environment than a combat veteran. And not because of their ability to shoot or throw grenades or anything like that, but their ability to manage the chaos. And that's what this situation was down there. It was pure chaos, and veterans have great ability for time to kind of slow down for them for them to really pick out what the urgent needs and problems are to address. The long-term solution is going to lie with those Red Crosses and the International Medical Corps, and there's no doubt about that. But in that immediate aftermath, there was definitely a need for these small teams to get into these areas that were just overwhelmed with injuries. And once we were going out and not finding those injuries is when we said, okay, we packed up and we left Haiti. And so Jake and I, you know, and the rest of the team, we all sat down and you know, we just decided that I think we have something here. I think we have a model for something. We have over two million veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. The skills and experiences that they've had translate remarkably well to disaster zones. All the polls say that our veterans want to continue service in some capacity. They, they feel like they're almost useless. There's an obvious symbiotic relationship between the two and nobody's connecting these dots. The organization is called Team Rubicon. Our mission statement is very specific. We provide this first response capability in the immediate aftermath of large disasters. First, we went back to Haiti on a, uh, on a cholera mission. Shortly after getting back from Haiti, that massive earthquake tsunami hit Chile. We sent a team down we there. sent a, a training mission to the Thai-Burma border. Shortly after that, the flooding in Pakistan. After Pakistan, we went to Sudan. What we were doing brought all these veterans together in this spirit of service. And they could easily define progress. Uh, They could easily see that they saved a life, which progress uh, to a lot of veterans was a hard thing to define for many years serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. In a refugee camp with a ton of injuries, uh, when you're presented with somebody that is near the end of their life, if you're able to save that person, that is a tremendous experience and that's and that gives you a feeling of self-worth that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. Now Team Rubicon does not stop. They continue to deploy in disaster zones around the world, most recently launching a huge operation in response to Hurricane Sandy. We're going to have a link to Team Rubicon on our website, snapjudgment.org. And a big thanks to Jacob Wood for sharing his story with Snap. It was produced by Anna Sussman. And when we return, a mountain is going to release the pain. Someone wants someone else's dog. And there's a ghost in the machine. For real. When Snap Judgment, the gratitude special continues. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the gratitude special. We're diving into stories that took us somewhere where we did not expect to be. And up next, we've got a piece that came from one of our Snap Live events from storyteller animator Scott Kravitz, where he lets us know why he did a very bad thing. I, I, I stole something from a homeless person. Uh, one day I, I walked outside of my apartment and there was a dog just sitting there in my driveway. Uh, I could tell the dog was sick, but there was nobody around and the dog didn't have a collar, so I just put her in my car and dropped her off at the animal shelter. And a week later they called me to say that nobody had claimed the dog and she was too sick to put up for adoption, so they were going to euthanize her that afternoon. Now, I, I didn't want that on my conscience, but I knew that I couldn't take her because my apartment didn't allow dogs. And even if it did, I, I just didn't want that responsibility. Um, so, uh, uh, but nevertheless, at uh, five o'clock, I was, I was back at the animal shelter picking up the dog. Um, and my plan at the time was to sneak her into my apartment, nurse her back to health, and then find her a home as quickly as possible. And I really didn't want to get attached to this dog, so I purposely didn't name her. Um, but then one day we were walking, and this homeless guy started yelling, Anne, Anne! And that's when I discovered that not only was her name Anne, but uh, she had been raised on the streets and knew all the homeless people. And suddenly I was cool with all the panhandlers. And, <laughs> and, and it was like Hate Street had become this giant, filthy nightclub. And I, and I was dating this girl who knew everyone that worked there. Um, but the, uh, the turning point came when I met the ex. Uh, she was a 16-year-old runaway named Sheila. And she came up and hugged Anne and thanked me for taking care of her and started to take her back. And when I asked her where she had been, she said, you know, the Presidio. like." that's the place where homeless people like to summer. Um, and when I asked her why she hadn't been looking for Anne, why, why she hadn't gone to the shelter, uh, she said she just figured someone else was watching the dog. And that's when I kind of snapped. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when all your politics get in a cage fight with your better judgment. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Sheila was clearly the dog's owner and it wasn't for me to tell her how to live. But legally, the dog belonged to me. Um, I had adopted her just minutes before a death that Sheila did nothing to prevent. Uh, plus, I knew if I gave Anne back, then her life expectancy was pretty short. So I finally told Sheila that she could have Anne back if she could get herself in a stable situation where she could keep a dog. I even offered to let her use my apartment, my, um, my bathroom, my, my phone, my computer, anything except live there if it would help her find a place. Sheila made a counter-proposal, uh, which was essentially that we have a duel. Um, she, uh, she and I would stand about, about 20 feet apart with Anne in the middle, and then we would each call to the dog, and whomever Anne ran to would be her owner. But I felt that the, the possible gain in legitimacy wasn't worth the risk of losing the dog, and I turned her down. Uh, plus, I didn't know what sort of secret street treat she might have to entice the dog. I mean, Anne, Anne was still very much part of that world. Um, uh, in, sometimes I'd even, you know, when nobody was looking, I'd even lay down on the sidewalk myself just to see how happy it made her. Um, so, so over the next month, uh, I found I was really falling for this dog. I mean, she was smart and affectionate and... Having grown up on the street, she wasn't freaked out by strange people or commotion. She was the perfect dog. And ironically, the more attached I grew to Anne, the more empathy I had for Sheila. Uh, but then one day, my brother called to say he had finally found a woman in LA who would take the dog. So that weekend, I drove Anne down to LA and dropped her off at the, this woman's house. But the moment I got back in my car, I just started crying. Um, I kept thinking about uh, a friend of mine who had gotten married really young. 
she said that she wishes she had met her husband later in life so that she could have experienced more life as a single adult. But she knew that if she waited until she was ready to get married, uh, somebody as perfect as her husband wouldn't have been around. I knew that I wasn't ready for a dog, but I felt that when I was ready for a dog, I wanted it to be Anne. And then I suddenly turned the car around and raced back to this woman's house to beg for Anne back. And a few minutes later, I was standing on her doorstep getting a lecture about how unfair I was being because uh, the woman's cat had just accepted Anne. And, and the cat would be very upset if Anne left. Um, but eventually I wore her down and got Anne back. Um, so now I had basically stolen the dog from two women and a cat. Um, and on top of that, I had to find a new place to live. So I bought a house. Um, and as I was packing up my things to move out of my apartment, I got a phone call from Sheila. Uh, she said that she and some friends were going to travel around the country in a camper so she could finally have Anne back. And I said no. And that was it. Now I was the homeowner denying the homeless. I felt like I had become the man to whom I'd always wanted to stick it. Um, you, you know, there are some stories that we, we tell so often they become a routine. This isn't one of those. Um, Instead, I gradually worked up a story that was very sweet and heroic and absolutely true, despite the fact that it made no mention of Sheila. And I told that story so many times that I'd almost allowed myself to forget about this part of it. I mean, it, it happened 11 years ago, and I got a house and a great dog as a result. Um, and I haven't seen Sheila around in years, which is good because I hope that she's doing well. I hope that she's healthy and living in safety and comfort, but I'm still keeping the dog. Thanks. <laughs> Big thanks to Scott Kravitz for sharing his story on the snap. It was backed by Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players, Tim Frick on the bass, and David Brandt on the sticks. And you gotta know that I am deeply grateful for each and every one of those fellas. Now, you end up being grateful for things in retrospect sometimes, things you did not appreciate, like family. Snap Judgment regular contributor April Wolf was grateful for her family and even more thrilled when they saw fit to pass her on a car. She just didn't realize that she was going to have to share it. So Aunt Janice had a very interesting reputation in our family, and that was because she may have been inherently evil. She moved out to Los Angeles early on in her life because she wanted to be a movie star. And she was quite beautiful. Things did work out for her for a while, except for her husband left her for his secretary, and it crushed her. Her husband, of course, was a divorce lawyer. He took everything, and she had to move back to Michigan. And she became bitter. It was just like this perfect storm of craziness at all of our family get-togethers. And she would refuse to eat anything. She would just mix vodka with Ensure on her deathbed after she got throat cancer. If she deemed that the hospice nurse was too fat... She would reach over, and with what little strength her little anorexic arms had, she would slap them across the face. When my great-aunt died, she had a dodge shadow. The family decided that it was going to me. I could not get this weird smell out of it. It was like death and cigarettes, but I was fine with that because the car was free. I had decided that I wanted to move across the country from Michigan to Los Angeles. And that's when things started to go kind of crazy with this car. And I remember the first time it happened, I was uh, driving down Lancashire Boulevard into Hollywood. I tried to brake. I lifted my foot off the gas pedal and I could feel the gas pedal not coming with me. Instead, the gas pedal started wedging itself down and my foot was nowhere near it. And I started pumping the brakes, but it wouldn't work. 
And so I was watching the speedometer go up to like 45 and I'm on like a residential street and I started freaking out and I was like, what is gonna happen? Stop, please stop. And, and I realized that when I said stop, it stopped. And then it started happening more and it would happen on the highway. And it was the same thing. The steering wheel wouldn't turn, brakes weren't working. When I verbally asked this thing to stop, it stopped. That's when I started feeling like, oh my God. And I know this sounds crazy, but maybe Aunt Janice was in the car and did not like that I was back in Los Angeles. I took the car to a few mechanics and they would do all of these tests and nothing ever, ever showed up on the car. But the second that I would get the car back, I would drive it home and it would happen again. What got really scary was I was driving, it was really close to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and um, I could feel something behind me pushing my head into the steering wheel. It wasn't like a hand, it was almost like there was this cushion of air it was just pushing me, and so it was so bad that I could not move my head, and I actually had to pull off to the side of the road. And even then, when uh, it, it allowed me to move my head up, it made me shake my head back and forth. I started talking to Aunt Janice and appealing to her in things that I thought that she would be interested in. I know that she really loved certain movies, like she loved The Omen. And so I would talk to her about like the time that Gregory Peck gets his head taken off. Because that was her favorite part of the movie. Almost like appeasing the gods. <laughs> when things really started to go awry is when she would follow me into work. My boss had called us into a meeting, and she said, before we could leave for the day, we had to find this one picture. It had to be in one of these 100 giant books, and we would have to thumb through all of them. While that was happening, I could feel Aunt Janice pushing my head into my boss's desk, and I was not able to fight back. So in the middle of this meeting, my head is slowly lowering itself. <laughs> And everyone's just kind of looking at me. And the only thing that I can think to say is, I have a really bad migraine. And so I said, if you can help me find this picture, I swear I will think about selling the car, and also I will think about moving out of LA. My head shot up, I stood up, and it felt like something was pushing my body. And so I just let go. And I went to the shelf and I picked up this one book and I opened it up and there was this picture that we were looking for. I could not handle the responsibility of selling a ghost car to a stranger. And I decided that I would donate it to a charity for the blind. When I got rid of the ghost car, my life improved drastically. And one of the things that happened is I immediately had a dream. And this dream was so vivid. And this dream said, I was going to get a red Honda Civic HX. I didn't even know an HX existed. And I went on Craigslist and I was just like, well, I guess I'm just going to post an ad saying that I need a, a red Honda Civic HX 1997. The next day, a woman called me and said, I have your exact car. I've had this Honda Civic through many states. I've just recently even driven it across the country twice again. <laughs> and now, <laughs> okay, so I moved to Portland, Oregon, not too long ago. And I'm on the way to the studio today, obviously, to tell this story about a car. And um, as I'm thinking about this car and all of this stuff and I'm on my way to the studio, what I don't realize is that the light in front of me is turning red. I blew through the light and T-boned someone in a white truck. My name is Dave Gillum. I was pretty shook. And he was shaking. When I finally got my wits about me. The first thing he said to me was, It's quite a coincidence. Six years earlier. To the day. I was driving the other direction and somebody came to the same light. Same intersection. Light turned green, looked both ways, went into the intersection, and boom, I got T-bone on the driver's side. Hit in the same way. By someone running a red light that day, too. Um, both times my vehicle had been totaled. And both times I was driving forwards, and both times it was pretty young women that did it. Okay, I have been, I would have been, here's the thing, Aunt Janice hasn't left me still. Like, there are still moments where things happen where I realize I need to make some sort of different life decision. Like, sometimes she'll just come back, and I don't know why. 
but there's a chance that maybe I should not be living in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> When Staff Judgment returns, we go to the top of a mountain and we pay a horrible price. But we're thankful. We are ever so thankful. When Snap Judgment, the gratitude episode continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the gratitude special from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and we're exploring just some of the stories that left us with a sense of gratitude. We're grateful that we got to hear them, but also grateful that we got to live them vicariously. And that is the very best way to live this next story. Storm White was hanging out in that country, Wyoming, splitboarding, whatever that is, with his extreme buddies. And when you hear this piece, you're going to be grateful as well. Splitboarding. What is splitboarding? Uh, splitboarding is a very obscure sport. It's a type of backcountry snowboarding. It involves a type of snowboard that's split down lengthwise, horizontally, into a pair of skis. It has about six pounds of extra hardware on it so that you can take these skis and use them for uh, traveling around in the backcountry over the snow really efficiently. When you get up to the top of a mountain, you can combine them back together into a snowboard ride down on the snowboard. Lines. Yeah, lines. You're seeing lines. Yes, exactly. Heaven. <laughs> it is heaven. <laughs> You're about to ride a line, uh-huh. and then what happens now? So, well, I mean, the first thing we do, we get up to the top, we transition our boards, and we drop down a line, and it's, it's totally perfect. I mean, it's the best powder that I've ever ridden. It's this beautiful um, day that's sunny with a few clouds. It's just a dreamy, beautiful, perfect day. Everything kind of starts out fine, and as the day goes on, we see more and more signs of avalanche danger. I see more and more signs of avalanche danger. Like well, I mean, the first sign we saw was a physical sign that was in the ground that said danger. There's avalanches, to be honest. That's <laughs> at this a good point. sign. Yeah. The sign said <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but avalanche that, danger. Yeah, but that sign you can kind of ignore. Well, I don't know. That sign you can kind of ignore, but then they're sitting around having lunch on a snowbed, and suddenly the snow drops six inches and it makes this big humph noise as the air underneath it blows out from underneath the snow warning yeah i am the mountain yeah i am giving you a warning yeah so what do you do well that's one of the clearest signs you can get of avalanche danger and um you know when that happened it was shocking because we were just standing there and we just all of a sudden dropped and you know everybody immediately just started like laughing uh, people cracked a bunch of laughing. jokes yeah they started laughing kind of nervously kind of like with bravado everybody's laughing ha ha very funny but storm is a little bit more serious he goes right up to the leaders and says do you think there is a problem they confer they talk about it and they say you know what we're going to split the group into two and decrease the impact on the mountain. People made decisions as to whether they were going to follow the one leader to the right or they're going to follow the other leader straight ahead. But when it came to me, um, 
there were basically the groups were uneven. Three people were climbing the slope to the right and six people were straight ahead. And so in order to keep things even, uh, my friend Ray and I turned to the right and decided to climb that particular slope. So I basically had slowly, you know, without really realizing it, put myself in somebody else's hands. And I said to myself a prayer as I went up to that right-hand side, you know, please, fate, you know, whoever's listening, um, don't let this slope avalanche on me and I will never put myself in this position again. I will never go out in a group of people that I don't know. I will never go out in terrain that I'm unfamiliar with without doing my homework. I will never turn my homework in late. I will never cheat off another person. I will always eat all my vegetables. I will do anything you want. But get me off of this mountain which is about to avalanche. Right. Now. I, uh did my traverse up to the right, went out into the clearing on the skin track, turned around, and I heard this very faint whoomph. And I knew immediately that I was hosed. Whoomph. Yeah, whoomph. And the whole slab of snow collapsed and dropped. And you I felt could, it? What's that? You felt it? I could feel it faintly. I could see the fracture line. And that slab started to move. I realized that the fracture line was right at my ski tips. And on the other side of that fracture line, the snow wasn't moving. And that's where the trees are. You've got a second to jump over. Yeah, I've got it. It's right there in front of me. I, re- I lean out over my ski tips. I take my right arm and I hook it, or hook it around a tree and just grab on for dear life. And the slab starts draining away from me behind me. And I'm like, totally safe. Totally safe. I pulled it off, dude. A fraction of an inch. And you're safe. Yeah, the whole mountain just was draining behind me. But then as I held on with my arm around the tree, um, was the sound of just thousands of tree branches getting ripped off of trees. I started to see these big like chunks, like styrofoam blocks, like water coolers bouncing down overhead. And as I saw those blocks of snow, um, as a surfer, you know, I have an instinct for <laughs> holding my breath and taking a beating. As the snow closed in over the top of me, I took my mouth and I pushed it up against the tree trunk. I found a little gap of air and I took a deep breath and it turned pitch black above me. And at that point, I knew I was buried underneath the snow. I knew I was having this bizarre experience. You couldn't hear anything at all. It was like being in an isolation chamber almost. It's pitch black. There's an immense pressure on all sides. You can feel it crushing you, and the snow mass is moving down the mountain. It's accelerating down the mountain, starting to go faster and faster. So I was actually gliding smoothly, and I could feel my ski edges on the the bed surface. I could feel my butt on the bed surface. I could feel my hand on the bed surface. And I wanted to get my head back up above the snow. So what I was doing was I would try to balance myself and I would do like a huge squat and I would try to stand up and get my head as close to the surface as I could as the snow just started going faster and faster um, but all of a sudden everything changed all of a sudden the conditions around me changed really radically what happened? Um, I was in this portion of the avalanche it's called the wave portion of the avalanche and all of a sudden I was going much much faster and I was um, totally suspended in the snow so I was no longer I no longer had any contact with anything at all so you're in the middle of this nothingness this darkness yeah what did you feel oh I felt that I was dying I felt it was the end of my life I mean I was so deep underneath the snow that there was no there was no light above me there was nothing to feel above me or below me the feeling that I felt was regret I felt this feeling of regret times um, you know a million What did you regret? That I had allowed myself to be in this position and that this is how I was going to die, this stupid way that I was going to die. Um, so far ahead of schedule with so many things that I wanted to do undone. You know, it's so strange because it was so intense for such a short amount of time, but just like the deepest sadness you could believe, overwhelming um, feeling of uh, loneliness because it's such a, um, you know, being in the woods or being on a desert island that don't even compare to being, uh, you know, buried. There was nothing to hear. You could just feel the vibration of, like, this tremendous power of the whole mountain moving and shaking at the same time, you know. Still, you had some decisions to make. I hold my breath, and that's it. Basically, I didn't have anything left. There was no snap decision. My decision, my opportunity for making the decision was long past. <laughs> you know, there's no, at that point, the mountain is showing no regard for my personal welfare whatsoever. The mountain didn't care. Yeah, not at all. Very, very, very merciless. Um, you know, uh, force of nature's are merciless. They do not care about your person at all. Um, 
you know, eventually, I, you know, and it's possible to know how long I was in there. I can't even, it's impossible to even guess. Probably, you know, it was a, under a breath. I was able to hold my breath the whole time. But the snow started to slow down. So uh, it left me basically in the same position I was in before. Put me down, I put my skis on the ground, I put my butt cheek on the ground, I put my right hand on the ground. I pushed myself up, I did this kind of mega squat, and um, this time as I pushed myself up, I didn't get my head above the surface, but it became light. All of a sudden I was in the world of light again, and I could see these big chunks of snow surrounding my head, and I was able to find a little crack of snow as the whole snowpack around me was moving, moving, slowing down. I was able to find a little crack in the snow. I was able to, di- to suck down a breath really quickly, and just as quickly as I did that, I was suddenly pitch black, covered in snow again. The snow was coming to a stop at this point, and so I knew that what you're supposed to do is try to get something high up in the air. And as I forced my right arm up, all of a sudden the snow above me broke away. My arm pushed through the snow, my elbow pushed through the snow, my shoulders and head just kind of emerged, kind of like a birth out of the snow. And um, the whole snowpack suddenly came to a stop, and I was sitting there up to my waist in snow. I heard my friend Ray start yelling my name from up above. Storn, storn. And it was just so heartbreakingly sad sound, actually. That's kind of what kind of brought the reality of it home because he was genuinely concerned that I was dead. And I, But just the acoustics of the mountain, for some reason, he couldn't hear me at all. He kept yelling my name. You tell everyone you're okay. You see your buddy Ray. My question for you is like this. Would you trust the people who you followed up the mountain if you had the chance to do it all over again? I wouldn't trust anybody if I had to do it over again. Um, I mean, that's what I, one of the, I don't know if you call it a gift, but one of the things I got out of it was that I can envision how scary it is to be underneath tons of snow. <laughs> and it gives me the courage to speak up and say, look, before we go, I'm going to talk to, about group, uh, talk to you guys about group dynamics and about avalanche, decision-making in avalanche terrain. You know, I thought I had this false choice of these two decisions, go straight or turn right, but I really had another choice, which is to turn around. And so, you know, if I took myself now, my current self, and put myself in that situation, I believe I absolutely would make the right decision. But, you know, it's powder snow. <laughs> um, there's always danger. There's always the potential for something to go wrong. And there's always the potential for making bad decisions. Anytime you look at a slope of untracked powder, you're looking at something that's unknown and you're looking at a possibility that it'll slide. And you're, there's no chance of it being risk-free. So, Storm, fantastic story. Thank you for being on Snap Judgment. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Base. Vision, dreams of passion And all the while I think of you A very strange reaction The more I see, the more I do Baby If you want to find out more about the world of Storn Check out this website Storn S-T-O-R-N as in never will I do this storn.com that piece was produced by Mark Ristich now it's about that time but don't fret be grateful why? because full episodes await your pleasure at snapjudgment.org snaps on your radio station On the iTunes, the Stitcher, the SoundCloud, the Android, the NPR app, we make it your way. Facebook doesn't even work without Snap Judgment. Neither does Twitter. Twitter handle is SnapJudgmentORG. Snap was produced by myself and the most unheralded, giving, amazing crew in all of public media. And I'm going to change that starting right now. I am thankful for the Chief Pilgrim, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. I appreciate the beat master, Pat Masidi Miller. Stephanie Fu, that woman is a constant delight. And all Anna Sussman's are made of sunshine. Nothing ever phases Renzo Gorio. Julia DeWitt makes complete strangers clap in applause. Nick Vanderkolk can't be bought. And Willerbina makes me wonder aloud. And yes, it's true. I wandered the beach, lost and afraid. I found an old beat-up lamp. I rubbed it, 
and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting came out, I am so very thankful for the CPB. The day the Public Radio Exchange decided to bring the public to the media, whether the public liked it or not, that was a very good day indeed. Let's be thankful together for the PRX.org. I'm grateful for Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. I'm thankful for every single snapper that has ever tuned in and said, that's what I'm talking about. And finally, you know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could go to the NPR newsroom. You could tell them that Snap Judgment has a story about that one time when that dude shot Superman in the face with a God gun and asked if they could play that on All Things Considered. And when they called security on you, I would be thankful that you tried and hope you remembered that even as far away from the news as this is, this is NPR. Wait, wait, wait. Think I want to hear some horns.